Father God, you are an awesome and wonderful God, and uh, it, is an, it is humbling for um, us to come before you and know how um, powerful and great you really are and how small we are in comparison, but that you love us. Even in the middle of our smallness and our comparative insignificance, Father, you look down on us and you love us. And you've given us your word. So my prayer, Father, is that you would get my heart in the right place, that you'd get my friends' hearts in the right place, and that uh, we would see you with clarity in this passage in a way that we've never seen you before, Father, that you would penetrate the deepest parts of our, 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 our being, our soul, and cause us to see the glory of Jesus Christ in his gospel. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles, please grab them and turn to Colossians 4, verse, where are we at? Verse 5. Verse 5 today. Today's the last day in a series that we've been calling The Chosen Ones, if you guys have been with us. And in this series, we're, we're looking at how God's people are called to live, how we're called to do life, and uh, what kind of attributes should define our lives. And we've looked at things like community, and fellowship, and what it means to be in church with one another. We've looked at what marriage looks like for people who belong to God. We've looked at what uh, it looks like for us to parent or for us to be children and respond to our Father. And we looked at, at what life looks like in the workplace. And so we've got this sort of panoramic view that Paul has at the end of this letter of what it means to be a Christian what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And now we're going to look at his last remark in this regard before we get into the closing greeting of the letter. Um, and next week we're actually going to be starting a, a new series outside the book of Colossians for, for four weeks um, on the Pillars of Risen Hope. But as we close out today, we're going to look at how Christians are called to live in the world. In the world. How we are called to interact in a world. How people who trust Jesus and love Jesus are called to live in a world filled with people who do not trust him and who do not love him. How should we think? How should we speak? And how should we live our lives? That's the focus for today. So let's not waste any more time and let's dive right in. Verse 5 of chapter 4 in Colossians. Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. <clears throat> On February 4th of 1555, John Rogers was, es was escorted from Newgate Prison to the town of Smithfield, where he would be executed by fire. Rogers had been accused of mischaracterization of the Catholic Church and not believing that the real presence of Jesus was present in the Eucharist, the communion uh, cup and bread. And it is true, he didn't believe either of those, and he believed that they threatened the gospel. And he was viciously interrogated and examined in prison under Mary I's rule. Mary I if you guys recall from history class, um, she's referred to as Bloody Mary. 
she was desperately trying to restore the dominance of the Roman Catholic Church in the country of England at this time. And what that meant was eradicating Protestantism and all these Reformed pastors who had come up out of the Catholic Church. And the gospel preached by the Reformation was a threat to the Roman Catholic Church and to Mary. Rogers, who along with William Tyndale, that name may sound familiar to you, and Miles Cloverdale had produced the first English translation of the Bible, the one we have, the first English translation. He was a Reformation pastor who was in the wake of Luther and Calvin, these great heroes of the Reformation, that lived in a fiercely divided Europe and preaching a bold sermon, John Rogers, in, 1950, or in 1553, um, just after Mary's ascension into power, was quickly placed in house arrest and then brought over to Newgate Prison, where he would remain until the day of his execution on that February morning. When it became clear that his time had come that February morning, he was denied, when he asked for it, an opportunity to see his wife or his 11 children he had not seen them for the entire time that he was in prison. He'd never seen his 11th child, ever. And the sheriff who was conducting his execution gave him one last opportunity. You got one last opportunity, John Rogers, to recant what you say. To which he responded boldly, that which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. I will seal with my blood. And approaching the stake, he possessed what was referred to as an unwavering gladness, a cheerfulness that looked like a wedding, not a funeral. And in fact, this was the emotion that defined everyone in the crowd, including his wife and his children. And as they lit the flames, he raised his hands cheerfully, embracing his own death for the sake of the gospel. And everyone who was present roared in approval. Rogers would be the first of over 280 souls who would die under Mary I's reign, joyfully paying the highest cost someone can for the sake of the gospel. And so the Two verses we've just read in Colossians, though it may not quite look at first glance like they're connected to John Rogers' story and John Rogers' joy, they are very deeply connected. And my hope is today to draw out that connection and show you where we fit into the equation. <laughs> These verses answer the question, how do Christians live in this world? How do Christians live lives among outsiders, among unbelievers? people who do not trust in Jesus Christ, people who do not love him or have any affection towards him, may think he's a good teacher, but that's all. How do we live in this world? How do we function day by day? What kind of attributes define our lives? What's the posture of a Christian life? And Paul says, we walk in wisdom and we do that moving toward outsiders. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. That's the posture of the Christian life. So the first thing to note here that we really need to key in on is Christians don't move away from outsiders. We move toward them. Christians don't move away from unbelievers. 
We move toward unbelievers. We press in toward them. We are not insular people. Christians are not. They don't circle the wagons. They're not a social club. Christians have a posture of life that walks toward outsiders. And the way we do that, Paul says here, is in wisdom. We walk in wisdom. Now, what does he mean by that? We know the word walk here doesn't mean, um, you know, to walk about. It means this is how we live. This is how we do life. We walk in wisdom. And fortunately, this exact command is enumerated and elaborated by Paul in his letter to Ephesians. So we get another lens that we can put over what he's saying here from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Listen to how he tells the Ephesians to walk in wisdom. He says this, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So just like his letter to the Colossians, Paul tells them to be wise and to make the best use of the time, to make the best use of the time that they have. And he's saying we do that because the days are evil. The days are fraught with evil. And he reiterates, listen, you cannot be foolish. Do not be foolish Do not act as unwise, but instead your job as Christians in the world is to understand what the will of God is. What is God's will for us? What does he desire from me today? That's, in Paul's view, walking in wisdom. That's what it means to walk in wisdom. And he's not talking about intellectual knowledge. He's not talking about philosophical knowledge. He's not talking about scientific knowledge. Those are great things. Those are awesome things. And we should respect and revere and embrace those things. But that's not what he's referring to here. Paul's saying, you need to know what God wants you to do today. What God wants from you today. That's what you need to know. Now, some of us would hear this and say, amen. I pray all the time that I would know what God's will is. I want to know what career to take. I want to know what school to go to. I want to know uh, who he wants me to marry. And those are good things to ask God for, but that's not what he's talking about here. Paul is saying, what does God want from you today? What does obedience look like right now in your life? Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this is not mainly a life decision like marriage or like school. The main question to walk in wisdom is, what does obedience look like right now? What honors God in the context that he has me in right now? What would magnify his beauty? What would make him look as good as he really is in my life today? So taking that concept, let's bring it back to Colossians 4. Paul is saying we need to walk in wisdom, which is at some level understanding what God desires from us. This is how we engage the world. This is how we walk towards outsiders. And then in Colossians 4, 6, Paul unpacks what the previous verse 
is speaking about. He tries to explain what it looks and sound, sounds like. And this verse really is going to be the focus of our time today. So Colossians 4, 6, the verse reads like this. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This verse that follows Colossians 4, 5 will undergird and support what we just read. What does it mean to walk in wisdom? What does it mean for us to walk towards outsiders in wisdom? And so Paul says, let your speech always be gracious. When we hear that, whatever gracious means, whatever the word gracious means right there, we need to recognize that this is actually the steady state of Christianity. This is the steady state of a Christian. Let your speech always, always, always be gracious. This is how we're called to walk in our day-to-day lives. This is the perpetual sort of state of a Christian. And then he describes gracious speech, speech, speech in this way. He says that it is seasoned with salt seasoned with salt in order that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So what does he mean by seasoned with salt? Well, if you've been to Sunday school or are even vaguely familiar with the Bible, you prob- or even vaguely f- familiar with American idioms and turn of phrases, you know the passage in the Bible most renowned for this word salt. It is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus in Matthew 5 tells his disciples this. He says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So, In Jesus' sermon here, he's talking to his disciples and he's saying to them, listen, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth, which, like I just explained, has become an idiom in the American culture when you say that person's salt of the earth, that person's um, made of salt, you're referring to them being noble or good. And that's a really great understanding of this phrase because just a few verses later, Jesus makes another analogy with light. And he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so this idea of being the salt in the earth, there's a connection between that and doing good things, being obedient, doing good deeds. There's a connection between being the salt of the earth and knowing the will of God, knowing what he desires of me every moment. Before we explore that connection, think about what Jesus says immediately after this. This adds some weight to what it means to be salt. He says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And then his response to that question, his answer to that question is, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That's heavy. That is heavy. He's telling his disciples, you were the salt of the earth. And then he makes sure that they know that this salt 
when it comes to looking like Christ, when it comes to glorifying God, is the difference between being worthy and being worthless. It's the difference between being useful and good for something and no longer good for anything. That's exactly the words that he uses. That's huge. And what adds even more weight to this is that he doesn't say, if it's not restored, it will no longer be good for anything. He doesn't say that. He says, how can it be restored? Like, at all. How can it be restored? If it loses its taste, its salt, it is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled. So Paul, back in Colossians, in saying, season your speech with salt, seems to be connecting the idea to being the salt and the light of this world. It's what it means to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. It's what it means to have your speech always be gracious. This is what he's referring to. It's connected to this salt. And so the question that I want to ask today with you is actually really simple. What is this salt? What is he referring to when he says, season your speech with salt? Or when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, what does he mean by salt? What is he saying? Why is this word salt so important? And in the past, if you've ever heard sermons teaching on one of these passages, you may have heard them describe what salt does, which is really helpful. Salt has a, uh, a, an element of it is that it preserves food. It preserves meat. It preserves it from decay. An aspect of salt is that it seasons food. You guys know this very well. It seasons food. If something tastes bland, you add a little salt to it, and it tastes a little bit better. Maybe, depending on what it is, maybe not so much better, but hopefully uh, it tastes okay. Um, or if you're familiar with agrarian practices, or if you've got a teacher who's familiar with that, they might say, hey, listen, they salt the manure before they pour it out in the field so that it helps the crop to grow. And so all of those are really good explanations about what salt does. But I don't, I don't remember or recall ever hearing a sermon saying, what is salt? That's what it does. And that's good. I need to know what it does. But what is salt? What does it mean to salt your speech? What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? What's underneath all of those things that it does that causes it to happen? And so when Paul says to the Ephesians, understand what the will of the Lord is for you, or when Jesus says before his disciples, um, let others see your good works so that they would glorify their fa- or your father, what is the root of those two realities? Like at the very bottom, what is the root and how is that connected to this idea of salt in the scriptures? And that's the question we're going to grapple with with the rest of our time today. So to answer this question, we're going to go through a few passages. And the first one's going to be Mark 9. There's a text in Mark 9 that all of you are aware of. But I guarantee you, none of you have spent time memorizing it. I'm almost 100% certain. In fact, this text probably is not going to win the award of most memorized Bible passage ever. Um, And you will see as I read it. Jesus is addressing his own people in a sermon And listen closely to what he says, especially at the end. Mark 9, 43 through 50. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Then he says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, what's most fascinating about this passage every time I read it (laughs) is that Jesus is saying that the life we currently live in, this life we have right now, isn't really life. This isn't really life. There is a kind of life that humanity is standing at the doorstep of that makes this life pale in comparison, such that he refers to dying as entering into life in this text. It isn't even comparable. This isn't life. This may feel like life to you, but you have no idea what's on the other side. That is life. And he calls it the kingdom of God. And the opposite of this life is not death. The opposite of this life he refers to as hell. He calls it hell. And then he expands on that word by saying it is an unquenchable fire, a a place where the worm doesn't die and where the fire never goes out. And he does not want us to go there. He is pleading with the people in this crowd, don't go there, which is why he's not painting a pretty picture. He's not painting one at all. That's, this is not hyperbole. This is not an exaggeration. He is using the extent of his language to describe what is an incomprehensibly scary reality, something we never ever want to experience or taste of. And these words are the words that get close enough for us to reflect on and obey. And so he's saying, no matter what the cost is, no matter what the cost is, don't go there. Don't go there. It is better for you to lose a hand or lose an eye or lose a leg than for you to go to this place. It is better for you to do that. It is better for you to lose them now in this life than to lose everything down the road. It is better for you. And he's pleading with them, whatever it takes, do not go there. And he's not exaggerating. I think we get to a text like this and say he's probably, it's probably a symbol for something that's bad, but maybe not fire. And whether it's a symbol or not, you have to ask yourself, is the symbol greater or less than the actual event? You use a symbol when you describe something you can't describe. And hell here isn't an overreaction by God. I think a lot of times we look at hell and we're like, you know, that seems like an infinite time of punishment. That seems like an overreaction, God. And I think what that reflects is, for real, it reflects 
how little we know about the gravity of our sin. It reflects how bad sin really is for something like this to exist. We live in an ethereal sort of understanding or, or an abstract understanding of sin. Sin is out there. But sin actually ends in this. It is horrible and hell is a reflection of that reality. And Jesus wants these people to feel that and to never go there. That's why he's using this language. He's pleading with them, whatever it takes, don't go there. Now, here's the question we have. What in the world is salt doing in this passage? Why speak about salt in this passage? He says here, verse 49, everyone, everyone will be salted with fire. Now, clearly he doesn't mean the unquenchable fire that he referred to before, even if there is a connection. He doesn't mean that. We know that because he actually tells you not to go there. He says, I don't want you there. And some people are going to enter into life. They're not going to go there. But what is the connection between being salted by fire and this unquenchable fire? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. There are a variety of ways that this passage is translated. Not a lot of really good, helpful commentaries because they're all over the map. Um, And when you hear me speak or when you hear anyone speak, your job, your job always is to test all things and hold fast only to what is true. If I or anyone else up here or anywhere really for that matter tells you something about God, you do not have any obligation to believe them unless you see it in here. You see it in here. You have every obligation to believe it. But if it's just someone saying it, you don't. And I'm going to do my best to commend to you what I see in the Word and invite you in looking at it. Um, It only matters, not what I think, but what God thinks. So Jesus says here, everyone will be salted with fire. After using the word fire to describe an unquenchable flame, to describe hell. This unquenchable fire is the final and permanent punishment for those who have ignored and despised God. And that's why he's telling us don't sin because that's where it will lead you. So this unquenchable fire is an embodiment of God's final wrath. But my question is, again, what does it have to do with being salted by fire? Why say fire here, Jesus? Well, I believe that Romans 1.18 shines a light on this. And points us in the right direction. Romans 1.18 says this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So listen how Paul phrases this. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. This isn't future tense. This is not future tense. This is happening right now. So what is he referring to? It's not the unquenchable fire. What is he talking about when he says God's wrath? He's referring to the fallen world that we live in. He's referring to our world that is racked by hurricanes and cancer cells, by violent floods in southwestern India and in mid-eastern United States, and by hate crimes, 
That's what he's referring to here. Whether it's the wickedness of man or the natural world that is racked by decay and devastation and suffering, all of these are connected to the wrath of God. Romans 8 even goes as far to say that God subjected the world to futility. All of those things that I just mentioned are in that bucket of futility. He subjected the world to futility and he did it in hope, which we'll get to in a little bit. So the wrath here isn't some distant concept in the future. It's what we see every day on our news feeds and on CNN. That's the wrath of God. And what that means is that the very brokenness that we see every day is kind of like an echo. It's kind of like a foretaste of a final day when judgment will be meted out. And he says here, that this foretaste is experienced by every human being that lives in this fallen world. Everyone is salted by fire. Everyone is. Believers are not immune from the fallen world, the effects of the fallen world when they start following Jesus. Though we trust in Christ, though we are justified before his throne, though there is no condemnation towards us at all, we still taste this fire. And you guys know this in your own lives. Struggling with pain, struggling with broken relationships. You know this is true. This is real. This is not what we were meant for. But here's the key. When that fire presses against our lives, it isn't a foretaste of judgment. It isn't a wake-up call. We know already who Jesus Christ is. When it presses against our lives, it is a purifying flame that makes us more like Christ Jesus. It makes us more like Jesus. Jesus says, everyone will be salted with fire. But fire has different effects as it collides with different objects. And when God's justice and his holy wrath presses against this world, it not only paints a picture of where it's headed, turn around, don't don't disobey me anymore, trust in Christ Jesus, give yourself to him completely, But it also causes those who belong to Christ, the chosen ones, it causes them to be salted. And what we're seeing here now is the beginning of a definition for that question we had. What is salt? What's the essence of this salt that Jesus is talking about and that Paul's talking about? It's not the answer yet, but it's the beginning of one. Jesus says in Mark 9 that salt is good. And then he tells us to have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another which is very similar to what Paul says when he says, season your speech with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So what is this salt? Well, there are actually many places in this book where you can see what the salt is. There are many places where you can see this answer in, the, in, in Scripture, but I want to go to what I believe is the clearest, and I want to go there because it mirrors the passage that we're focusing on in Colossians, Colossians 4, 5 through 6, it mirrors it in an interesting way. It's in 1 Peter 3, 14 through 15. And I want you to listen closely. I want all of us to listen closely and see if we hear some of the themes that we've been talking about. See if we hear something that sounds a little bit like being salted with fire. See if we hear something that sounds a little bit like answering people with speech that has been seasoned by salt. 1 Peter 3, 14 through 15 says this. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, 
you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. So the entire book of 1 Peter, if you read it, is about suffering. It's all about suffering and suffering well in this world. And not just suffering as a byproduct of the fallen world, but really suffering for the sake of the gospel. Suffering because you love Jesus Christ and are showing him to this world. So when Peter says that we might suffer for righteousness sake, he, he, he means we're not suffering because we've done something bad or wicked. We're actually suffering because we've proclaimed Jesus Christ. We've known God and shown him to this world. And he says, when you suffer like that, you're going to be blessed. You will be blessed, he promises you. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of any of them. Don't let your hearts be troubled by this suffering. Instead, do this. Honor, in your heart, honor Christ Jesus, the Lord, as holy. That's what he says to do. In your heart, honor him as Lord. Now think about that. In your heart. The heart is the wellspring of all of our affections, all of our loves. They all flow from our, our heart, a devotion to whatever it is we're devoted to. In other words, the deepest possible level of your soul, this throne of your heart, honor Christ the Lord there. And don't just honor him as Lord. You should do that. But honor Christ the Lord as holy. And holy is this term which means, it means pure and righteous, obviously. But even further than that, the Hebrew term for it meant to sanctify or to set apart, to draw out from everything else in your life, this is alone on this pedestal. This is alone in this throne as worthy of devotion and as worthy of adoration. And so what Peter's telling us to do in the middle of suffering here is to treasure Jesus. To treasure him. To love him. That he would be our highest treasure. And that flows, the hope that you see in a, in a believer in the middle of suffering flows from this. And he, said, he tells Peter something very similar to his statement, uh, Paul's statement to the Colossians. Listen to this. Peter says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So always be prepared to make a defense because someone's going to ask you, what's the deal with this hope? Why are you hoping? You're dying of cancer. Your kid just got in a car accident and died. Why do you hope? That line from 1 Peter sounds a lot like Paul's line in, in Colossians. Listen to what he says here. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Why? So that you may know how you will answer, ought to answer each person. Do you see the connection between those two texts? And for Peter, the reason we're answering people is because they see something in us that they've never seen before. There's some kind of hope in you. I don't get it. You shouldn't be this filled with gladness. You shouldn't be this happy. 
Peter's saying the world is watching, Christians. The world is watching. Outsiders are watching. Unbelievers are watching. And when they look at Christians who are walking through suffering in this way, they ask, what's the reason for the hope in you? What is the reason you have hope, Christian? Or John Rogers. Why do you have hope, Rogers? Your family is about to watch you be burned alive. Why are you so glad? Where does your hope come from? This kind of of radical hope does not exist natively in this world. It does not exist as part of this fallen world. That in the middle of profound suffering, Christians can experience a joy that is unwavering because this hope. It's not normative. It is not normative. In fact, it is very strange and alien. And when outsiders see it, they're going to ask, what's the deal? I've had this asked of me. What's the deal? You just got diagnosed with cancer. Why are you so happy? What's your problem? There's nothing more foundational than this in the Christian life. And that answers our question. What is salt? Salt is joy in God. At the deepest possible level, there is nothing more foundational, there is nothing more basic in the Christian life and in the Christian paradigm of hope than being delighted in God and in Christ Jesus as your supreme treasure. Because in the, for the Christian, in the middle of disease, in the middle of devastation, in the middle of relationship nightmares, there's joy. There's joy because our joy isn't connected to them. It's connected to God. And that's the source of Christian hope. And it's very strange in this world. There's no other motivation more important. There's no other fountain for our actions more ultimate than, more fundamental than our delight in Jesus Christ. Our treasuring of him. So when Jesus asks you, or when Jesus says, have salt in you, This is what it is. The salt is a delight in God. It is saying, God is my highest treasure. God is my greatest joy. And here's the deal. When we're experiencing joy in God, when our pursuit is our pleasure in knowing him, in our inviting people into showing him, we begin to understand his will like we saw in Ephesians 5. We begin to understand what he wants of us in that moment. And we take this book that he wrote for us and we saturate our hearts with it because we want to know how we're going to answer someone when they ask about the hope. We want to know how we're going to interact with them when we engage them when they're walking through suffering. We want to know. And this book helps us understand that because it helps us understand who he is and what he desires. And Christians who are, who are dominated by this kind of joy, Christians who are ruled by this kind of joy, desire more than anything else to let this light, their joy in God, shine before others. Because when outsiders see our good deeds, they're going to say, where are those coming from? Why, do you, why are you so happy? Why, do you, why are you so kind? Why are you so charitable? Not because we're good not because we're natively or intrinsically good, but because he's good. 
And because in seeing him, we are overwhelmed by his goodness and we love him more than anything else in the world. Which means that this salt is the only thing from a foundation aspect that in a Christian life, once it goes, once it's gone, once it's removed, if God does not graciously restore it, you will be ineffective in everything you do. Lose a delight in God and you lose everything. Jesus says, if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything. Without joy in God, there is no Christianity. There isn't. We're not a bunch of rule followers. We're not a bunch of checklist keepers. We are people who are dominated by a love for this great God because we've seen him as he is. And that's what John Rogers saw. That's where his joy came from. An invincible hope in clinging to Jesus as his highest joy allowed him to walk into death joyfully, cheerfully. I want to read to you a, uh, a passage from a book by uh, J.C. Ryle, who uh, is a pastor and theologian, and he uh, collects the last few minutes of, of John Rogers' life, and he expresses them in just a few paragraphs here. Let me read them to you. And try to go in your mind with John Rogers in Smithfield to that last day. On the morning of his martyrdom, he was roused hastily in his cell in Newgate and hardly allowed time to dress himself. He was then led forth to Smithfield on foot within the sight of the church of St. Sepulchre where he had preached and through the streets of the parish where he had done the work of a pastor. By the wayside stood his wife and ten children, one a baby. He saw them, but was hardly allowed to stop, and then walked on calmly to the stake, repeating the 51st Psalm, which was a complete sovereign thing of God. I did not realize we were going to be even engaging that today. Repeating the 51st Psalm of repentance as he goes to the stake. An immense crowd lined the street and filled every available spot in Smithfield. Up to that day, men could not tell how English reformers would behave in the face of death. And they could hardly believe that prebendiaries and dignitaries would actually give their bodies to be burned for their religion. But then they saw John Rogers, the first martyr, walking steadily and unflinchingly into a fiery grave. The enthusiasm, when they saw him, of the crowd knew no bounds. They rent the air with thunders of applause. Even Noaia, a French ambassador, wrote of the description, a description of the scene and said that Rogers went to death as if he was walking to a wedding. What allows a man to do that? What allows a man to do that? What, what caused this man to so clearly be salt of the earth material that in the moment when everything else is stripped away from him, he's happy in God. He has a surpassing joy in God. What caused that is the death of Jesus Christ. 
who secured every ounce of that joy and pressed it into the heart and soul of John Rogers. When Jesus died, he bought that for every person in this room. There's not a single person who can't do what John Rogers just did. There's not a single person in this room who can't do that because we all, even if it's small, even if it's faint, even if it's a shadow right now, we all in us, if, we, if our faith is in Christ Jesus, we all have that kernel of joy in us. And it is the Christian's task to do everything we can to light that sucker up. This isn't a joy found in the world. It is only available to those who trust in Christ Jesus. In fact, the very heartbeat of our faith, what it means to trust in Christ, is to receive him as our Lord, as our Savior, and as our treasure. We love him more than anything else in the world. And it means that we have a hope that will never, ever be shaken. We have an unwavering hope. That's what it means to be salt in the earth. An unshakable hope, even in the midst of the deepest possible suffering. The world looks at that, and the world says, what's the deal? What is the reason for the hope that is in you? And our response is very sim simple. Jesus Christ. We are in love with Jesus Christ. He is everything to us. So if it all goes away, we still have him. In fact, Paul would say in Philippians 1.20 that, or 1.20 through 22, to be with Christ, or to, to die is to be with Christ. Death is gain. You get him. And that's the victory for the Christian. That's the hope that, that Peter is trying to hold out for us and say, they're going to ask you why you're like this. This is your response. You honor Christ. You treasure him in your hearts as Lord, as holy. Jesus Christ is everything to the Christian. Let's pray and ask God to, to help us with understanding this. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You are so good to us. You gave up your precious son, the greatest value in, the, in all existence so that we would be reconciled to you so that we would have faith in you and trust you and be embraced by you as sons and daughters. You did that, Father God. And at the bottom of everything that was changed in us when you broke our confidence in our flesh and gave us confidence in you, everything that was changed in us when you rewrote the code of our hearts so that we would adore you, at the bottom of all that is a is an unwavering delight in Christ Jesus, a desire to know him and to show him, Father. And what we need more than anything else right now is for your Holy Spirit to come and for you to commend to us that reality, that we would see you as you are and that it would change everything in us, Father. That our delights and our desires, though we can have them in things, would not trump the ultimate thing that we are to adore, Christ Jesus, such that we can lose all of those other things and still be glad. Be like John Rogers, Father. I pray that you would do that for the people of Risen Hope. I pray that you do that for the people of Kingsgate outside these doors who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is so important that we see this, that we hear you. 
And so come, Holy Spirit, as we sing, as we participate in communion, as we recognize what was spent for us in order for us to have this joy, you would give to us, Father, a confidence in you and a desire to press further than we've ever been in who you are and in our delight in you, Father God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.